For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, here today with Jane Claire Tyner, who is our fifth employee, team member, we like to call them, here at End It For Good. And Jane Claire just started about six weeks ago. And I wanted to get her in while we're still doing this series with End It For Good team members on the journey that brought us to how we think about the way to approach drugs and addiction and what brought us to join End It For Good on the team. And so, Jane Claire, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. It's great to be a part of this team. So I wanted to just open it up for you to begin wherever you want to on your journey of um, what brought you, let's first kind of start with what brought you to the way that you think about what we need to do related to drugs and addiction. Um, And we'll just jump off there. Um, Well, you know, I, I think I was the kid that always said, it's not fair. And I think I became an adult who kept saying, no, really, (laughs) this isn't fair. And I was fortunate to have a father who uh, was a brilliant orator, and he was born to be an attorney. And so he allowed me to have these wonderful debates with him, which I, of course, never won. But he never said to me as a rebuttal, life isn't fair. And so I never grew up with thinking that when we see injustice in the world, we're supposed to just take it. Hmm. We're always supposed to fight against it. It is not right. Yes, life is not fair, but that doesn't mean that part of our job is to make things equitable. So I think I kind of always was aware um, or just had this focus on being able to see those things in the world. I was in college in the early 90s. And so... Coming into adulthood in that place where we've got, you know, there there is the crack epidemic and we are beginning to see these much stricter um, criminal punishments for drugs. And looking at those, I became very aware that they weren't equitable. 
um, you know, talk about what you mean by that. Yeah. Talk about what you mean by that. So in an attempt to, because we, we begin to think of crack as being this, this monster drug, um, and that it was the, the most evil of all evils. When we look at the demographics of the people who were buying crack, here are people of a lower socioeconomic background. And we ended up making these laws where you can have someone who has a gram of pure cocaine. They're going to get a lighter sentence than someone who has a gram of crack. And it didn't make sense. Absolutely didn't make any sense. Um, if you want to find a lot of cocaine, you could probably walk down Wall Street and find a ton of it. If you wanted to find a lot of crack, you're going to go to Harlem. Right. So why did we have this difference in these laws? I, I don't it never occurred to me that it was something nefarious, you know, that it is this intentional um, systemic racism that we have put in the system. But I think it was not thought out. And so in, in looking at those things, it's kind of like, you know, there are a myriad of reasons when we look at incarceration why there are these demographic skews, but what is the best way to change that? So in regards to, to the drug war, thinking about how to make that equitable is very important to me um, since I was a teenager. So that kind of, I think that's got me on what are, what are the alternatives to the drug war? Um, and then I had a son my firstborn child, Asa, uh, as a single mom, he and I were very, very close. And he, you know, my mother will tell you that when he started talking, he started talking in full paragraphs. We were, and we were incredibly close and we had very deep conversations about everything from when he was a really little guy. And he became an addict. He started using in his early teens and as someone who was from a more liberal background, I really thought that I had this real good grasp on addiction and drugs and, and crime and all of these things regards to it. And I realized living with him and his active addiction that I didn't have a clue. Mm. And I don't think that anyone does until you are there in that spot when this person that you love is this totally other person that you don't recognize at all. <clears throat> and having to come to grips with that and that, that, you know, as a parent, there's this tremendous struggle. When you see your child doing wrong, you are angry, right? That is love. If you love your child when they are doing wrong, it makes you angry. But seeing that in addiction, how to balance those things, how to help him, how to let him get help. Um, it was a, it was a very long road, but it opened my eyes to a lot more injustices. What I didn't know at the time or what I had really not thought through until I was in a place where I was trying to get treatment for my own child was how little accessibility there is for addiction treatment. Hmm. <clears throat> it's incredibly expensive. Um, I was fortunate that my, my son had uh, three different moments of, of rehab. One, when he was a senior in high school, he went for a week. Um, and then when he was older, he went two more times. 
once for 30 days, once for 60 days. And when we would go, <clears throat> when we would go to visit, you know, you, you have these moments where for the first, the first 10 days, you can't have any communication with your child. You can't see each other. And then everybody comes and all the parents are together and counselors talk to you and they talk about addiction and what addiction is and how it works. And then you get to see your child. And I remember the first time I went to that family weekend that I looked around and it was all white faces. And I left there enraged about that, that that there that I was able to afford this for my son and I was so incredibly grateful for that and it was wonderful seeing him embrace recovery but how many other mothers didn't have that hmm. so when I began thinking about so you know I was just really you know anger is this god-given emotion right that is an emotion of action we are to see when we are angry it is because it is to propel us to change something so I started thinking like how, how do I change that? Um, you know, I thought about like, let me go talk to a couple of rehabs and see if I can come up with some scholarship program and I'll, I'll fundraise and I'll make these scholarships. Well, then I'll start thinking, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, that's three kids in rehab for 30 days. Yeah. And that's it. And I don't think so most people really, realize how expensive it is for, right. I mean, there are grants depending on, um, what state you live in, depending on how they allocate their federal grants, depending on whether or not you can qualify for those grants. Like there are some people who can go, uh, but in terms of like the quantity of people that there are needing it and, right. and whether or not, if you don't qualify, um, that's not unheard of. This is not like Jane Claire was looking for the, the poshest rehabs in the country. Right. right. <laughs> we were not like... at Malibu promises. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, just trying to, to get treatment. For a loved one, it is incredibly expensive that we did a previous podcast episode with Colleen Cowles, who mm-hmm. um, is an attorney who did estate planning. And she got, well, she started to realize people's net worth was dropping as they were retiring. And she was trying to figure out what is happening. Like, why are my clients suddenly like losing so much money and realized so many of them were paying for addiction treatment for children or grandchildren. I I mean, that's just shocking when you think about that kind of impact that it's having on people. So um, yeah, continue. Mm. But this is such a, such a real, such a real thing. Yeah. It was a real eye opener when I started calling rehabs to find out how much it was. And here I have this son that is in, you know, your, your heart is just breaking for your child and you call and they're like, we have a bed, but we need to check for $5,000 to secure it. And those kinds of things, it was so incredibly eye-opening that people tell you all the time, hey, if you want help, it's out there. Well, let me tell you, it's out there if you have the money. Mm. It really is not as accessible as people like to think. Um, so when I, you know, thinking about that really opened my eyes again. How do we solve this drug problem? How do we make it so that that everyone who's using, everyone who's an active addiction, everyone who has a substance abuse issue, they all have a chance to get treatment. So it was kind of really the combination of, of those two things that that made me begin thinking, what is the best way to approach this? 
Um, and in regards to that, it was kind of how I came to a legalization regulation position. Um, it is not a criminal matter. It is a health matter. <clears throat> I also started thinking about the amount of money spent on the drug war. And we're looking at, you know, small police departments that have military grade equipment specifically for the purpose of dealing with criminals who are either running drugs, doing drugs, whatever the case may be. And that it was really such an industry. It was a it was an industry of profit and it wasn't helping anyone. Um, we, we don't have any less people using. We certainly don't have any less people in prison. Uh, we don't have any less supply. So how can we change that? What can we do with that money? Could we refocus that money? Could we make it so that we're we're taking part of that money and we're we're bringing social workers in to police departments to help work with people who are in active active addiction? We're we're bringing that money into drug courts so that people can get help. We're bringing that money into substance abuse centers and more grants so that people have access. Um, so it's really a matter of that. When you look at the numbers of the amount of money spent to continue the war on drugs, it is preposterous. It is outrageous and um, it's ineffective. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. The other thing that, that, that really happened is ultimately my son Asa who, even though he did have access to treatment, um, died as a result mm -hmm. of his addiction. And through the course of that, I, I really had to deal with a, with a lot of things. Um, the stages of, of grief, we all had to go through them. But the stage of anger was a unique one for me based on how his death happened. Mm. Um, and, and this is something that I don't share with a lot of people because it is, it is very difficult to discuss. But it is necessary to see how I arrived where I did. When my son <clears throat> died, he had contacted me about a week before and told me that he had started using heroin. Previous to that, his, his drugs of, of choice were cannabis and Xanax. And he had always been very adamant about, you know, he had this line, right? That, that's a bridge too far. Um, and we talked about it. You know, you know, Asa, do we need to go to rehab? You know, what do, what do we need to do? What do we, what do we, you know, where, where do we go now? Um, and he wanted some time. You know, uh, he was someone who was, he really loved physical activity. So we talked about him, you know, how much he, he loved being physically fit and working on his diet and those kinds of things. At the time he was <clears throat> living with my mother who was a widow and he had been living with her for about six months at that time. He'd just finished a semester of school 
and he had done incredibly well. Uh, he was excited about his future. And then he gets to this Christmas break and all of a sudden, everything's different. <clears throat> My mom starts calling me and saying, you know, I, he's using, I don't know what he's using, but I'm, I'm looking at him on the kitchen floor. Something's going on. So we start wondering, you know, what, where do we go now? How do we, how do we deal with this? I was living on the coast and one day my mother called and said, you got to come up here. And so I did. I got there that I got to Hattiesburg that evening. And Asa was, he was high. He wasn't terribly high, but he was high. Earlier that day, my mom had called 911 because she thought he was overdosing. Mm-hmm. And police came, you know, you know, all the first responders came. They talked to my mom about it. And Asa, um, being Asa, told him, I'm okay. I'm really okay. I've got this. We're all good. Please talk to my mom. You know, do, do you want us to put him in jail for a couple of days? What do you want us to do? So we decided we'd stay home. By the time I got there, um, you know, I remember walking in the kitchen door and he looked at me and he said, hey, mom, I didn't know you were coming here. And he gave me a hug. And then he looked at me with this realization that, oh, you're here because I'm high. Oh, you're here because we're about to have an intervention. And this countenance of his face changed. <clears throat> he, um, he was looking for his keys because he told me he had to go somewhere. I, got, I just got to go to the store, mom. I just got to go to the store. So, of course, my mother and I knew what that meant that he was looking to use. He was going to score. So we got his keys and we hit him. And um, we're trying to just keep him inside. You know, Asa, just come on, let's go watch this movie. Asa, come on, let's talk about this, whatever. And all of a sudden, he vanished. So I picked up my phone and I called him. I said, Asa, what, what are you doing? Hey, well, look, I just took Mimi's bike and uh, I'm just riding to the store. I'm just I'm just going to the junior and I'll be right back. Asa, it's so cold tonight, son. It's so cold tonight. Why don't I tell you what? Where are you? Let me let me come get you. I'll pick you up. Let me pick you up, okay? And I, I'll take you wherever you need to go. Let me pick you up. No, mom, I think it's kind of invigorating. I'm enjoying this bike ride. So I sat by the store that he told me he was going to. I drove over there and never saw him. Had no idea where he was. Hours and hours and hours went by, calling his phone. At first, it's ringing. Then it's going to voicemail. <clears throat> um, that whole night, nobody slept. My mother didn't sleep. I didn't sleep. We wondered what was going on. It was a Sunday morning. My mom is getting ready to go to church. I'm still laying in bed, wondering where my boy is. He hadn't made it back. There was a really loud knock on the door. And it was the kind of knock you never want to hear. Um, Fortunately, my mom was in her dressing room and I went to get the door and it was someone from the coroner's office. And so I see the sheriff's badge and I think, you know, my first thought, of course, on his mom, it's not that he's dead. My first thought is, where's my son? Is he in Forest County Detention Center? Is he in Lamar County? Where is he? You know, and then she says, well, that's what we need to talk about. And she comes in and tells me that he's gone. 
in the course of that conversation, she told us that, uh, you know, it did not look like there had been any foul play. It, it, it looked simply like there had been an overdose um, and that there was really no need for an autopsy or anything. And that was kind of it. She left. At the time, there had been this, this kind of uh, influx of fentanyl into the Hattiesburg area. So, of course, my thought was he went to use what he thought was heroin. There was fentanyl in it. He in, in, injected, and it immediately hit his heart, and he died immediately. That's what I thought. You know, this was, um, that's what it was. It was fentanyl. Weeks go by, and then his death certificate arrives with the coroner's report. Remember reading the coroner's report? I'm looking at the time of death. I'm looking at the, the three causes of his death. The first one is hypothermia. The second one is cardiac arrest. The third one is drug toxicity. When I looked at his toxicology report, toxicology report, there, there was no fentanyl in his system. There was morphine. There was benzodiazepines, there was cannabis, there was no fentanyl, and there was no heroin. The coroner called me shortly after I got that and said, you know, we, we talked about coming to, you know, how they arrived at that conclusion um, and how sorry she was and that she was sorry that we decided not to perform an autopsy at the time. Because what I learned Later, so my son went to a house of a dealer and he used, and he told the dealer, man, I don't feel good. I'm gonna get back on my bike and go back to my grandma's house. And he went outside to get on his bike and he passed out. And it just so happened that night in Hattiesburg, it got down to 19 degrees and it stayed under 20 degrees for hours. So this event happened around 11 p.m. They told the authorities when they got there, hey, we came out and checked on him every hour and every hour he was breathing. And it wasn't until 6.30 that he was no longer breathing that they called. Talk about rage. I mean, I just can't even, you cannot begin to process the rage that you feel thinking about your child dying from indifference. That's what it felt like. He died from indifference. He was left there to freeze to death. What did his brain think about in those seven hours of dying? What was going on in his head? All of these terrible things that you think about as a mother. Angry. I was so angry. I didn't find this out until weeks after his death, and I kind of skirted around the, the anger portion of griefing. But then I was really right in the middle of it. The DA of Forest County called and, and scheduled a meeting with me um, along with a, a Metro Narcotics officer and an FBI agent. And I went into that office wanting retribution, bad, really wanting retribution and angry that I had chosen not to get an autopsy. And so therefore we could not charge this guy with negligent homicide and his mother whose house he lived in. And I was so angry. 
talking to the metric narcotics officer. He tells me about the, the kid whose house he was at, that they had been, this guy was known. They'd been watching him for a long time. Not really because they were so interested in him, but they knew that they would get him to bigger fish. And the Metro narcotics officer tells me is, Miss Tyner, that kid is a mess. He's an absolute mess. It's weeks out. He's still not right. So I had to sit with that and thinking about that. He did, of course, go to jail because they did find drugs on him. He did end up getting charges with the 21-year possession charge. So I had to sit with that and think. What has that gained me? What has that gained me? My son's not back. This child who also needs help is in prison. If you want to find drugs in America, go to a prison or a kitchen restaurant. He's not going to get help in prison. So I had to wrestle with that. And I really had to think about my, my anger. Was my anger, this emotion that God gives us to propel us to change something, was it absolved? And this kid being in prison, was it satisfied? Was my vengeance as a mother, was it eclipsed? No, no, absolutely not. And I had to really spend a lot of time in scripture. Um, so I spent a lot of time in places where God spoke about his own anger and his own wrath and how we need to let him handle things particularly Romans 12, Paul reminds us, be angry, but don't sin. Live peaceably among men. Remember, God said, vengeance is mine. And I had to go back to that over and over and over again. As a Christian, my job is to forward the kingdom. How do I do that in light of this? And sending that kid to prison wasn't it. Um, I don't have a lot of answers for how we, we deal with the, the justice part of that. I don't. But I do know that that kid let my son freeze to death because he was afraid of going to jail. He didn't let him freeze to death because he was callous or indifferent, but because he had drugs in his house and his mother's house, and he knew if they came and there was an OD man there, they're going to search his house. Dogs are going to come in and he'll be charged. And that's what happened. So I think about the laws that we're putting on the books now and this, uh, you know, this, this misguided attempt to prevent these overdose deaths. And I want to say to these parents, I know your pain. I know your pain. More kids are going to die because of that. Because more people are going to say, man, if I call the police, I'm definitely going to jail. Um, so it was really kind of the, the culmination of all of those things together, of having that, you know, of having this sense of this need for justice and equanimity within American institutions and seeing that that was not the case within drug policy and, and criminal justice system toward drugs in America kind of began my quest for how do we, how do we do this? How do we deal with this? Then having a son, a firstborn child in active addiction gave me this whole other perspective on 
how how do we work with people once they are struggling and and how do we get as much care for as many people as we possibly can and then really it was knowing how my son died and learning that the person he was with will be spending 21 21 years in prison and that my son is certainly not coming back that really changed me completely and made me realize the only way, the only way less moms are going to avoid that knock that I got that Sunday morning is if we begin to look at harm reduction avenues and legalization and regulation is the the best option we have. Um, And it's a really good one. And we're fortunate to we're fortunate to be in a position now where we have seen that kind of taking place. We've seen that in Portugal. We're seeing with um, cannabis restrictions where we're using it recreationally, how those things are playing out. We're also at a place where there are very few people in America who have not personally been touched by drugs. That's a terrible place to be, but on the one hand, We don't have a lot of people anymore who say, oh, the war on drugs is working. We know it's not. So I am, my son is not, is no sacrifice to this cause by any stretch of the imagination. But if there is anything to take from this moment, it is that the horror of so many of America's children being lost right now is forcing us to open our eyes. It's forcing us to be empathetic. It's forcing us to search for solutions. It's forcing it to figure out how do we go from here. Um, and this is this is where we are. And that's that's kind of how I was led to you to end it for good. Um, but I also I I could have never gotten here without my faith without this sense of not only is my God sovereign and nothing happens outside of his hand, he's also good and he is just and he is so good and he is so just. I have no idea what that looks like. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what the most just thing is to happen. I don't know what the most good thing is to happen, but I know that I have to trust him. And I know that I'm called to do one thing, that's love him and in my love for him, love other people. Um, we're not doing that by throwing a bunch of people in jail. And we're not doing that by letting a bunch of kids die on the street. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? by inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement end it for good.